think that the environment that we live in has a huge influence on our value of things, on how much we appreciate things. The environment, the, the space that's around about us, the culture and the history and the people around about us, the environment that we're in has a huge influence over our value of things. We live in the consumer-driven, throwaway culture of the West, and we have got, I don't know if you've stopped to think about this, we have got so much stuff. We've got so much stuff. We are surrounded by so much stuff. There are so many ways that we can live. There are so many ways that we can get through life. We've got so much stuff. I think it makes it harder to appreciate the value of things. You take yourself out of that environment, and maybe you've done this once or twice in your life, and you put yourself in another environment. Let's say you go to a third world country, or you go somewhere that's, that's, that's had a war, or that just, it just experiences a sharper end of poverty than you're used to, and you get a, a real sharp, quick appreciation for the stuff that you've got at home. Do you know what I mean? It comes like a couple of weeks, you're back out of that environment, and you come, you come back and you say to yourself, I'm never going to I'm not going to forget that again. I'm not going to take my mobile phone for granted. In fact, it's much simpler than that. You say to yourself, I'm not going to take the running water I've got for granted anymore. And you change the environment and you just value this stuff in a different way. But I think living in the land of plenty, the UK or the rich West, when we've got so much stuff, and I think this is generational, and I think we, like, I worry for my kids and my kids and their kids and all the rest of it, we're just going to lose this sense of what we've got and the values of things, what we've got. I've got this long-standing uh, memory of what we came to call in my family Vianetta Fridays. Are you familiar with Vianettas? My great-grand Jowett, um, you'd, we'd go around for tea every Friday, and it really wouldn't matter, it wouldn't matter what was for, there'd be a couple of different things she'd do for tea. She had one or two things that she could pull out. It was fairly routine and fairly similar, but it would always be Vianetta for pudding. It would be Vianetta. It's like working class luxury. I think that's the best way I could describe it. If you're not familiar with it, it's a dessert that you buy in all low budget frozen food stores. Now, actually, it's like thin, crispy chocolate and um, mint ice cream. And I remember when I, was a, when I was a younger boy, we'd go around to my grands and we'd get this. And you know, week after week, she'd pull out this dessert. And week after week after week, she would have this. You'd see her go off into the back room. She'd take it out of the little box. She'd bring it back on this like silver platter. And she would, she would look at it with just sheer joy. Just sheer, like, I can't. And she'd almost look at you and say, can you believe that we live like this? We live as kings. You know, the, the, just the, the sheer joy of it. I will never forget it. And I remember thinking, you know, who, who of us is, is going to cope with life better? Who of us is going to survive better? Me, who, who knows actually that this Vianetta is not such a big deal. I've just had a double-decker on my way over, and every night I have a pretty good pudding. Or is my gran, my great-gran, going to cope with life better? Because she, she's able to live in a world with so much provision and yet she can look at something so simple and so low budget as a Vianetta and have such joy about it. Which of us is going to cope better? 
And I think as I look back and I reflect, I guess my gran came from a different time. She was shaped by different circumstances, different routines, different values, different life experience. So that she got to a point, she was so shaped and so formed that when she got to a place of abundance, she could still look at the simple thing and just treasure it and look across the room at her three grandkids and go, look at how we live. There's lots of advantages to living in our land of plenty, but one of the disadvantages is that we quickly forget the provisions that we have. God's people, into the text of Leviticus, God's people were going to go on, on a massive journey. They were going to go on a huge journey. We're going to run through a little bit of what that journey was, but it's, it's like they're going to go from absolute poverty to just being as rich as, I guess, as they can imagine. They're just gonna, it's, it's a transformational journey. And Leviticus, the, re, the, the place that we're going to come to in Leviticus, sort of punctuates that. And the sacrificial system, which comes kind of in the middle, God gives these people something to think about. So let's remember where these people were. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. Um, Exodus 1, 11 to 14 says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built... Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. I think that's the kind of this is, you know, proper hard, if you've seen any of these films, it's proper hardcore slavery. The Egyptians were so worried that, that the Israelites, as they multiplied in number, were going to amass power. They beat them down harder and harder. And these people just lived an oppressed life, the worst kind of life. And then the next stage, you know, and we remember God redeemed them wonderfully, miraculously. Part of the Red Sea brought, sent plagues on the people and God Save them, and then they roamed around as nomadic shepherds in the desert. And they're on their way to, I guess, something that when you come out of poverty, you can't ever really imagine. They were going to be kings in their own lands. It says in Deuteronomy 6 When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You'd think that getting to the end of a journey like that would kind of cement the people's relationship with God, wouldn't you? Do you know what I mean? You'd think that, that you've come from nothing, you've come from absolutely nothing, and God has taken you to a place where you are in a land that is overflowing with milk and honey. You're at, you're, you know, you've got more food and drink than you can deal with. That's the promise. That's what these people are having. Houses filled with all good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, 
vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. So these people have just been like completely transformed. This is where they're headed. They're headed to like five-star, all-inclusive luxury. And God, and, you'd, and what you'd think is, you'd think you'd get to that place and you'd see what God had done. You'd see the way he'd saved you. You'd see the way he'd changed you and your relationship would be good with God forever, right? You'd think that's what you'd think. And yet, it's at this point in the journey that God stops them dead and says, you're gonna need to be careful. You're gonna need to be careful now. You're gonna need to be careful that you do not forget me comes at that point of the journey. I think that tells us kind of two things, two kind of points when you, when you think about what God's trying to say to these people. The first one is that as human beings, we have got an amazing capacity to forget. Think about what God has done to these people. I mean, how do you forget the parting of the Red Sea? How is that something that you can overlook? How is that something that you can just, that just sinks out of the back of your mind. How is that even possible? But the reality of it is, living as Christians today, we, because of, because of the opulence, and I guess this is what God's word is suggesting and getting us to think about, because we've got so much stuff, we can, we can forget the miracles that God has done in our lives the amazing things that he's done, the way that he's changed us, the way that he's shaped us, that can somehow go out of our minds. The second thing that I think it tells us, I think God really speaks a word to us here. He says, you need to be careful. You need to be careful with all these possessions that you've got. The Israelites were going on a new faith journey. They'd experienced God, I think, in a really overt way. Their walk with God has been, it'd been, really, it'd been really obvious. Is God with you or is God not with you? He'd, he'd, they'd seen his hand in miracles and they'd seen his provision with manna in the desert. They'd seen it in a really overt way. And God's saying now, you're going into a land of plenty. And what's going to happen in this land of plenty is that you're going to forget me. And what I want you to do, what you're going to need to do is be careful. I think that speaks a real word to us in terms of what our faith journey is what is faith to us because sometimes we don't see God in this overt clear way we've got so much stuff God says be careful in your opulence faith for us the faith journey for us now is working out how we're gonna how we're gonna still see God how we're gonna still be dependent on God given that we've got so much stuff, thinking about all the ways that we can live and all the opulence and all the provision that we've got. I guess we've got more, we've got more TV channels than we know what to do with. We've got more apps on our phone than is really necessary even to live. We've got financial resources that even though we might feel a bit strapped, we're actually really okay. There's so many ways for us to live and be okay. And I think as part of our journey through life is that in, in experiencing life with all these provisions that we forget God, we forget what he's done in our lives. We forget that miracle moment maybe when we came to faith and we got to know him. And God says to us in this moment, he says, be careful. Be careful. So that's the first point. Being God's people in a land of plenty means you've really got to be careful. The second point 
is that we need to appreciate God's provision. It says in verse 1, and we just, you know, God gives us these, these sacrifices that we might really that we might really wrestle with an issue, that we might really think more deeply about an issue. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the, pre- Aaron's sons, the priests. The priests shall take a handful of flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion, p- portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offering presented to the Lord. If you bring a grain offering baked in an oven, it is to consist of the finest flour, either thick loaves made without yeast with olive oil mixed in thin loaves made without yeast and brushed with olive oil. And immediately you think about this and you, you think back to last week and you try and remember, yeah, Ash spoke about the burnt offering and he spoke about the the, the, the lamb or the cow that you would take from the cattle. And what he said was, this cost a lot. And when you hear week two is, is about the grain offering, and what you think immediately is, okay, well, it must be something else because this doesn't cost a lot, right? This is a cheap offering. One of the things I think we need to think about, we need to try and put our, our, our heads in their headspace. Actually, yeah, it's, it's not a cow, but actually they had lots of cows. This is something that they didn't, they didn't have grain. Think about who these people were. They were nomadic shepherds. They were wandering about in the desert. They didn't have grain. It's a bit like, it's a bit like God asking us, or, or, or the, the payment for our, for our love to God, if God says to us, I want, you to, I want you to go and get some penguins. It's a bit like God saying that. And you'd say to him, oh, well, I'm sure penguins don't cost that much, but actually I don't have any penguins with me. I don't have any penguins Right now, God's saying to him, I want you to go and get some grain. And these people would look around living in the desert, wandering from one place to the next where there's grass, just, just enough and you know, a bit of water to feed their cattle, and they wouldn't have had grain. And they would have had to go off to find you know, s- s- some little city nearby, and they would have had to trade for grain. And then they would have brought this grain back, and then they would have had to sacrifice it and give it away. And the second thing to say about this is it would have been hard work. God asks the people for fine flour. And we we get the little bag of flour right now and we just think that that's the easiest thing in the world to do. But these people would have had to grain that up themselves. This would have been, you know, this would have been a lot of work to go to. They'd have been saying, why am I going through this rigmarole? And the other thing that's going on is these, I guess if you've gone to all this trouble to get the grain... You've, you've, you've gone through all the rigmarole of, of finding it, of resourcing it, of going out your way. It's not, it's not easy for you to get, but you've got it. And then you get it, and your son's looking up at you, or your family's looking up at you as you do it. And then you go and you take it to God and you sacrifice it. It's kind of like saying, yeah, we, this, this, this grain, this food that we've got that we've worked really hard to get, we're happy just to give it away. And the next, I don't know, six or 12 months of your life, in a sense, is, is invested in God. You're saying to him, yeah, I've worked hard and I've got this grain, but I'm happy just to give, it, to give it away. There's a huge cost to this grain offering. And I guess God's saying to them two things in this. I guess he's saying to them, I want you to remember what I've done. I want you to remember what I've done. I want you to remember that I'm the Lord your God. And I want you to remember that, that I guess when you, when you inherit, when you go into the land of plenty, 
when you move from the desert and when you go into the promised land and you've, you're, you've got more food and drink than you know what to do with, I want you to remember that it was me who looked after you because you're going to forget. And the second thing, and I think the really important thing, is that he wants them to acknowledge that it was him. He wants them to acknowledge that it was him. And as you think about that, you think, I'm not really sure that I like this God that asks that of us. I'm not sure that I, I'm comfortable with that. That he can't, isn't, isn't he a good God and isn't he an all-powerful God and can't he just give us things? Can't he do that? God asks us to do something and he asks us to acknowledge that it was him. Why does he do that? Why does there need to be sacrifice? Why does there need to be a response? Is that still a good God? And it's because he wants to have relationship. Think about, think about if you're a parent and you're blessed with children, think about why when you give them a lollipop that you want them to say thank you. Why do you do that? Why do you go for that rigmarole? Is it, is it because you're a cruel, vindictive overlord that just gets a buzz out of your kids going, oh, thank you, Dad. You know, you can walk, walk away like, yes, I am the provider for this family. I am a great man. Look at my kids who need me. Is it, is it because of that? It's not because of that, is it? That's not why we want our kids to say thank you. We want them we want them to say thank you because we want them to value the relationship. We want them to know that we are the provider. And it's not just in, a, in an overlord, authority kind of way. It's in a, I want you to get that I love you. I want you to trust me for this. I want this to be a relationship. So when teaching how to speak to God, um, Jesus said, remember, remember the Lord's Prayer? Jesus was teaching his, his disciples how to turn to God and how to talk to God. And he tells them the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he says this line, give us this day our daily bread. What does he say? Give us today our daily bread. Give us enough food for today. Not not enough food forever, not, not a car, not something awesome like that. He said, when you talk to God, ask him for enough food for today. Why do you think that is? Because he doesn't want us to feast. He doesn't want us to enjoy the pleasures of the earth. No, that's not, that's not what it is. His disciples were always feasting and always eating food. He wanted to do that because he wanted his people to know dependence on him. Remember the story of the manna in the desert, God's people didn't have any food. And God provided them with manna in the desert. And he said, this is just for today. Why did he do that? Because he was a cruel overlord who wanted to milk it? No, he wanted his people to wait on him. He wanted his people to know him for that and need him for that. When you talk to God, the instruction, oddly enough, is just say, just ask for enough There's a temptation, I think, for us, thinking about the God that wants people to depend on him, people to know his provision and wants relationship with him. There's a temptation for us to consider our Christian experience as something that we did, something that happened in the past. You know, there's the story of a cross that happened. There's the point in our lives where we came to faith 
that happened. And we, there's a temptation for us to think of our Christian life like that rather than something that is ongoing, that happens all the time. I've had this... It is, it's been a picture in my mind. I've had this picture in my mind all week when I've thought about what salvation is. And it's this, it's this idea that God has pulled us out of the ocean in the boat. That we're drowning in the ocean in trouble and God has pulled us out of the ocean in the boat. And the idea of being saved to us, we kind of think of it as, well, I've done that now. God has pulled me out of the boat. But this, the truth about what salvation is, we are, yes, we are saved, but with God, we are being saved. We still need his provision. And the, and the picture of, in, that I've had in the boat is that God has sort of pulled us so far out of the boat and we've, we've, in our Christian journey, as we've experienced that, oh, I'm saved now and I'm in heaven or I'm heading towards heaven, is we've gone, oh, thank goodness for that. Thank you for saving me. I don't need that help anymore. But the story of our salvation is not like that. God is not like that. God is a God who is, yes, he saved us. Yes, he's pulled, out of, pulled us out of the water. But we are being saved. This is a story that goes on. God wants us not just to see him as somebody who's done something and then that's it. Who God is, is the provider. God wants us to look at him and say that, not that we needed him, because that's not happened when you got saved. You didn't get to a point in your life when you said, yeah, I needed that. You got to a point in your life, if you're a Christian, where you realized not that you needed something past tense, but that you need it ongoing. And God challenges his people to appreciate his provision. They're going to live in a land of plenty. They're going to need to know and appreciate and value that it is God who gives the good gifts. And the final point that we're going to get to is that knowing God's provision brings us joy. When you, when you read through that text at the start, I don't know if you're anything like me, and maybe you were thankful that it wasn't all blood and guts and it wasn't all blood and guts. It was more like it was more like a Paul Hollywood cookbook, wasn't it? When you read through that, just follow the text through with me, verse four um, through to the end. If you bring a grain offering baked in an oven, it is to consist of the finest flour, either thick loaves made without yeast and with olive oil all mixed in, or thin loaves made without yeast and brushed with olive oil. If your grain offering is prepared. On a griddle, it is to be made of the finest flour mixed with oil and without yeast. Crumble it and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your grain offering is cooked in a pan, it is to be made of the finest flour and some olive oil. Bring the grain offering made of these things to the Lord. Present it to the priest who shall take it to the altar. And, and there's a couple of things that you notice as you read through this. Because all these sacrifices are different. and They'll all shed a bit of different light on the story of the cross. But the first thing is, and it's really obvious in a sense, is that there's no blood there's no blood in this sacrifice. So we are, I think we are good reformed evangelicals, most of us. We know that without blood there is no remission for sin. So what is going on in this sacrifice? What is happening with this sacrifice? The second thing that you notice is, as it sounds a bit like a Paul Hollywood cookbook, what you realize is there is an element, although it's, in quite, although it's compartmentalized a little bit by God, there is an element of participation on behalf of the worshipper the person who's bringing the sacrifice here has a little bit of involvement this is not just to go and take the bull and kill the bull this is a you can have a think about this you could 
You could bake a loaf of bread. You could bring a sweet bun. You could bring some donuts, that sort of thing. So yes, it's sacrifice, but it's also worship. People who know God's provision will want to thank the provider. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find worship a difficult place to get to, and I'm the assistant pastor. Worship can be a difficult place to get to. I don't mean, I don't mean just standing and singing. I mean singing like every word carries a weight of meaning. I mean, worship like when, you're, when your spirit is just lifted inside of you. I mean, worship like when you want to give thanks to something outside of yourself. Worship like when the actions that you do are not, are not done out of a sense of duty. You know, this is what I do when I'm a Christian. But when the actions that you do are a spontaneous response to God's love, that's what worship is. That can be a hard place to get to sometimes. And these, God says, the way that you get to that, these people find themselves, as they bring this sacrifice, spontaneously baking different kinds of things. And they get there. And it's not a forced effort. It's because they have realized that God is the provider. I think we think about it. Maybe you think when you come to worship, yeah, I just need to try a bit harder with this. You know, I need to, maybe we need to pick the songs a bit better. Or maybe, maybe I, you know, I just need to, Think about it some more. The key way to worship in here is these people knew God as the provider. And it was like they're able to get to a place in relationship to God just because they know that it's God who's the provider and who's giving them the food and who's looking after them. The joy that comes with knowing it's all in his hands and placing yourself there. That's what worship is. When you know the certainty of God's provision. The whole, the whole storyline, one of the big storylines of the people of Israel is that they were looking for the provision of God. And they look for it in every aspect of their life. And one of the aspects of their life that they would look in it would be, would be on, on their fields. So eventually they go from being wandering in the desert to being settled in the promised land round about Jerusalem. And they had, a, they had a celebration called the, the Feast of First Fruits. And so the Feast of First Fruits would come on the day of harvest. And you can imagine the, the setting. The fields would be all full of the crops. I think mostly in Jerusalem the crop was, was barley. The fields would be all full. You know, you'd look around and the people would, would have talk and chatter on the festival of first fruits about the way that God has provided for them. They would look out to the fields because they were a faithful people and they would say, yes, God has provided for us again. We can live for the next 12 months because God has provided for us again. And the rabbi would come out and he'd cut a sheath of corn and he would take it to the altar. So nobody's eating yet. The fields are, are ready for harvest. People's cupboards are a bit bare. People haven't got, you know, they've not got loads of grain in there. People are wanting to celebrate and ready to eat. The rabbi comes, he takes the sheath and he offers it to God and the people go back out, they take the harvest, and they're dancing in the fields, and they say, yes, we can celebrate because God has provided for us again. The day of first fruits, and this might just have been a coincidence, but it's, 
But it's my experience that God doesn't really work like that. The day of first fruits, when all these people are talking with hope and expectation that God will provide, that very same day was the same day that Jesus, having been buried, was risen from the dead. So you've got this, I mean, try and picture it in your minds. All the chatter around the homes of Jerusalem is from, from the dads down to the sons, from the rabbis down to whoever's listening, you know, look at the fields again. Look at the way we can celebrate. Look at the hope that we have. Let's take this first fruit offering to God and let's really celebrate that. And just as that sort of chatter is going around Jerusalem, a rumor starts to spread like wildfire that Jesus' disciples have seen him risen from the dead. There has been a new kind of offering. Paul looked at it and explained it like this. But Christ has indeed been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Jesus had risen, a people who'd spent generation after generation after generation depending on God and looking for his provision, had seen a new offering. There was hope now. There was a new hope, but it wasn't just a hope that God would provide a slightly fuller tummy for them or 12 months of further food. There was a new hope and it was a radical new hope that God had risen and that meant that they had a hope of life over the power of death. We live in a land, we live in a land of plenty. We live in a land where there are plenty of reasons for us to forget about God. We need to be careful to remember that he has provided us with everything that we need.